As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. the total soccer show and our latest round of listener questions my name is ryan bailey and joining me on this odyssey of queries is a man who's delighted that crypto.com has been unveiled as a fifa world cup official sponsor taylor rockwell hello hello i would love to let yes and you on this one but no i'm not thrilled about crypto doing things still kind of skeptical about crypto even if larry david tells me that being skeptical skeptical about crypto is a bad idea but i guess it's good they got more money that's what the premier league definitely needed uh, the best part of this news story, Taylor, crypto is banned in Qatar. Oof, oof, that's interesting. For now, I'm sure they'll find a way to make it like Qatar coin, and then it will be fine. Yeah, I think they will. It'll be like Budweiser when you you know how often in countries you can't drink beer in the stadiums, and Budweiser magically make that rule disappear when World Cups are held in said countries. <laughs> uh, maybe it'll be a similar situation with crypto. Hurrah! What a world we live in. Also joining us is a man who likes international breaks a lot more than I do, Joe Lowry. Hello. I really do, Ryan, although that's not a particularly high bar, given that I think you actively hate international breaks. So I, I exist somewhere above your bar. Premier League, I miss you so much. Come back. Why have you gone? Why did you leave me? Why did you leave me for this period of time that you always do? Oh, It'll be back. Don't worry. Don't worry, Ryan. It will. It will. But hey, international break, fun times, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. If, you, if by fun you mean stressful, then you're spot on. <laughs> Absolutely. And rounding out our pack for listener questions today, it's a man who said today on Twitter that Eric Ten Hag speaks much better English than he does, prompting me to bite my tongue about his uh, nationality, Graham Rutherford. Hello. Hello, Ryan. I mean, it's just straight facts that Eric Ten Hag almost certainly speaks better <laughs> English than I do. I, yeah. I, I was kind of joking on Twitter about uh, every Dutchman I've ever met speaking perfect English, but I also wasn't. <laughs> it feels no. like everyone in Holland has perfect English, so all this chat around Ten Hag having to take English lessons feels slightly slightly strange. It's 100% true. Uh, the Dutch do always have excellent English skills, generally speaking, Graham. I, I should maybe talk to some Dutch friends. I, I presume they learn English at the same time as they learn Dutch when growing up. That must be it, right? Uh, and I think American TV as well. I've got some Dutch friends and they will throw in some random American TV slang every, every so often. Uh, uh. And I'm like, eh, that's from the Cartoon Network uh, when you were growing up. Um, so 
yeah, maybe TV as well. We we all, we were all taught by TV, so you know that's that's understandable. Yeah, is it a Dutch person saying like partner? Because th- that that would make me very happy if they were trying to throw out like 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 uh, terminology from Western movies. That would that would howdy be partner. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's what I need. I can't even do a good like yes. I can't even yeah. do a good Dutch accent, but just yes, partner. Every so often they'll just throw in like a cowabunga or an eat my shorts <laughs> or something like that. One should always every now and then throw in a cowabunga. Graham. Oh that's yeah, how the world should work. Oh yeah. Oh, Calabunga, we should carry on with the podcast. Uh, before <laughs> we get indeed. there, though, I'm, um, now, I'm now envisaging, sorry, Eric Ten Hag giving his team talk to Manchester United and going, OK, high press, lads, intensity high, tempo high, and Calabunga. Surf's up, Calabunga. And if Paul Pogba's not paying attention, he gets a little slingshot out of his back pocket, Graham. Is that what, is that what we're going yeah. for here? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, speaking of Paul Pogba, Taylor, I don't know if you saw this new story from uh, the French national team from Clairefontaine. Um, Kylian Mbappe meeting Paul Pogba yeah. on camera. Uh, Pogba asking Mbappe, uh, how's it been at your club? His club being PSG. And Mbappe audibly replying, uh, je n'aime trop mer, which means I'm so fed up with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think... And, I, and I, I haven't seen the audio. I just saw that caption uh, and the little story about it. I did wonder if that was Paul Pogba sort of being like, it's great, right? I should move there, shouldn't I, on a free? It's going to be awesome. And then finding that out and just trying to rationalize to himself how, but it'll be different when I'm there. I'll turn it all around. Uh, yeah, Kylian Mbappe seeming tired. Paul Pogba talking about how he's been, I think, had depression issues since Jose Mourinho was Manchester United boss. It doesn't seem like anyone is particularly thrilled to be at their present club unless they're playing for like Man City or Liverpool. Oh boy. Yeah, I think Pogba just got a piece of paper from his back pocket and crossed um, crossed PSG off the list. The list is next. getting shorter. I'm not sure where he's <laughs> going to end up. It's going to be interesting. It was a small post-it note. Yeah, we'll see. We shall see. Uh, in the meantime, we should probably get to our listener questions. We have many of them. Thank you very much for submitting them. If you have, if you would like to, totalsoccershow.com slash questions. That's where Pete Johnson went. Pete Johnson asks, why are draws a thing? Why don't we just use penalty shootouts or whatever method to ensure there's a winner from every match? Do you guys think that would cause a significant change in the outcome of the top leagues? I presume if we did away with draws and had penalty shootouts at the end of matches, which is a timely notion, Pete Johnson, because, of course, Major uh, Major League Soccer's new development league, MLS Next Pro, is beginning this Friday. It's inaugural season. And it's been announced it will have no draws. Games tied at the end of 90 minutes in MLS Next Pro, the development league, will be decided by PKs. Uh, a similar concept, Taylor, you'll remember from the first four years of MLS, where shootouts came at the end of ties. And those shootouts were those funny halfway line ones, weren't they? Great. Um, they were. Yeah, Taylor, perhaps we should, um, we, we, in pre-production discussion of this question, we learned that Graham and I perhaps had a different outlook to yourself and Joe in that um in the approach of this question is that right taylor yeah a little bit i think because when we get questions like why are draws a thing i think it's always interesting how if you are sort of brought up in it they just are that's how it works you have draws but i think if it's if you're coming at it from maybe maybe more american north american perspective you have playoffs you have championship games there's more of an element of like no you have to have a winner you play the game so that at the end somebody's a winner and somebody's a loser that's the nature of competition so why does this sport have draws that seems odd and it's it's strange to kind of straddle those two divides because i understand where that idea comes from of like it's the ted lasso joke about like draws and no playoffs why do you even do this um <laughs> but i personally think that draws 
are awesome, <laughs> like weirdly. Uh, I have some ideas as to why draws might be a thing, and I have some ideas as to why I think they're great. Uh, I will happily get into those, but I don't want to talk too long up front. Okay, let's go to you then, Joe. Do you think um, draws are great? They are a fair reflection of what happens when two teams are inseparable by scoring one more than the other, which is a very obvious thing to say. No, but it's it's true. By their very nature, they do do exactly that. And for that reason, I appreciate that soccer includes draws in regular season affairs, right? Or in group stages of tournaments and things like that. I think they are at times the most equitable outcome of a game. And so giving both teams some division of credit for that feels fair to me. I will also say, though, between the number of times that I've been asked by friends and family you know, why does soccer have draws? Like, why can't just someone win? It is a very American thing, or at least it seems to me, to want a winner. And I do feel that way at times, especially especially when you see teams, I think about Nashville, I see in Major League Soccer last year, that are drawing so often on a regular basis. It feels strange that you go through so many games with almost this unsatisfied taste in your mouth afterwards. Mm. Ryan, to go back to MLS Next Pro, which I also have in my notes, that's a great pickup from you, they will be doing that whole thing. It's like hockey. I'm pretty sure this is a hockey thing where you win the game in regulation, you get three points, you lose in regulation, you get no points. And then if you go into penalty shootout, the winner of the shootout gets two points and the loser gets one. So if you tie at the end of regulation, you still get a point. If you win that penalty shootout, you get an extra point. I'm really intrigued by that idea. And MLS is using MLS Next Pro as this testing ground. They're going to be the laboratory for soccer, basically. USL has done a bit of that in the past. It's really going to be MLS Next Pro's time to do some of those things. I'm really intrigued by that idea of still playing for a winner. I don't think penalty shootouts are a good way to do that. And so for that reason, I'm not sure we'll ever get to a really good way to divide credit and maybe a slightly better way in splitting two and one points. But I, I understand why draws exist. I think it is fair in a lot of contexts. But I do also still have that little American part in me that is unsatisfied by draws at times. Uh, Graham, let's tap up the little American part inside Joe about being dissatisfied about draws. Mm. Let's expand our minds here for a second and look at the positives of a scenario where they don't exist. Uh, more engaging for the fans. Teams would be probably more inclined to attack and not play for a draw. You wouldn't have parking the bus or whatnot. What say you, Graham? Is there a scenario where you could see draws going away and uh, us actually settling ties there and then always? Um, I don't see that happening in, in regular seasons or at least in most leagues around the world. I, I think the, the format is pretty well established by, by this point. Uh, as we were talking before we started recording, the first international match ever between England and Scotland in 1872 ended in a goalless draw. Um, so it's kind of just an accepted part of the, the sport at this point. It would completely change soccer forever if, if you had every match had had a winner. For for me, it's kind of difficult to articulate, but if I, if I try my best, I think it just makes things really, really binary. Um, you would lose a lot of nuance in judging teams. You know, a lot of teams would lose matches without playing. And I know you can lose a match anyway, but uh, while, while playing well, I should extend that thought. But you would have a lot of teams who would, would lose matches having played a pretty good game and deserved something from that game. Um, and I'm not a, the biggest fan of of shootouts as a decider. I enjoy the drama of them and accept that some sort of breaker is needed in knockout formats and so on. Um, so I do think there is some value in the, in the, in the current format, but they aren't, they aren't used very often. They're only used when all other breaker options have been exhausted. And um, yeah, generally speaking, you, your question there, would it change soccer? Absolutely, because a quarter of all soccer matches 
generally speaking, end in, in a draw. So if, if you had shootouts deciding those games, then the, the points implications of that would, would be pretty major. Having said that, the thing that I actually wasn't aware MLS Next Pro was doing, that the, the penalty shootout breaker, um, that is a format that we've had in the Scottish League Cup for maybe four or five seasons now, where if you draw a game, it goes to a shootout and you don't get the full three points, but you get a, a bonus point. And I remember there was an article written by, it may have been by The Athletic actually last season, where they tried and worked out without those bonus points if there'd been any difference. And basically there was no difference at all. Um, <laughs> the, the tables pretty much, the groups that we have at the start of the League Cup, our League Cup format slightly different. They, pre- they pretty much were still in the same order. So basically their conclusion were that these bonus points were kind of superfluous. And in, in, in the large part, there was a couple cases where it was different. So it's, 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 it's tricky, and I, a lot of it just comes down to this is the way it's always been done. Um, but also, I do think I like the nuance, and I like how draws mean it isn't so so binary in terms yeah. of the outcome. And also, as I was saying to Taylor before we started recording, draws um, aren't necessarily... They're, they're, they're in a regular season format a lot of the time, and there is still a winner and, lo- and loser in a regular season format in terms of how the table uh, piles up. It's just that in that specific moment, you don't have a winner and loser. So it's still leading to some sort of outcome in the end. It's not quite as simple as saying there isn't a winner or a loser. Yeah, a a couple things to go off of what Graham said, because I agree with pretty much everything. I would say when you talk about that first international match, I, I think it's worth going back to that for a moment. Just if we're talking about why do draws exist in the first place? I think it's worth remembering that the laws of the game were codified by quote-unquote gentlemen. I'll put that in quote-unquote because who knows. But I, I think there's an idea that like, if you're coming together to come up with these rules, you would want something that rewards both participants for their robust efforts or whatever the phrasing would have been. And I think there would have been this idea that if it's a fair reflection of the way the game was played, then it needs to be the fair reflection of the way the game was played. I think a draw is... I think, like, as I said, more of a reflection, but also you don't then have that, like, arbitrary thing tacked on at the end. And I do think, to Graham's other point, a penalty shootout is this really tense, emotional thing that happens at the end of 120 minutes plus of of playing time. If you add it at the end of 90 and you add it at the end of 90 after every single game that ends in a draw, it kind of removes the drama and I think just becomes another thing we got to do before this game is over. I think it elongates games. I think people aren't going to be as engaged as it might seem. I think the novelty wears off really quickly. And in the end, it's just like, oh, we got to do that shootout thing. It feels like an exhibition kind of thing to me. And I think all of that leads to another point that I had, Graham, from from our pre-show conversation was the idea that Americans have playoffs and I think to have a team make it into the playoffs that has a bunch of draws just feels odd and you can get draws in the NFL for example I think there's even ways oh it's like permanently suspended in baseball but football can definitely end in ties Uh, but I think the idea of that happening multiple times would not go over when you have a playoff structure whereas when it's just you play the season at the end of the season whoever's on top wins Again, a draw feels like a more accurate reflection of the way the game was played, the way the season went down. So I I do like it for all of those reasons. Now, if we were talking NASL penalties from, I think it was 35 yards, right? I'm not sure it was midfield, but uh, I'd be down for that. I'd be back in on NASL penalties across the board. And I think if MLS wanted to do the penalty shootout after the end of regulation, 
uh, more power to them because that feels like a good way to get wins and losses and people into the playoffs. <laughs> That's a good point you make about the novelty of penalty shootouts as well, Taylor. As, as Graham said, around 25% of games end in draw. So if we had, mm-hmm. say, an extra 25% of games having penalty shootouts, the, the drama and effect of them might lessen for sure. I also wonder if um, it would change roster construction mm-hmm. in the penalty, penalty takers become at a premium. If you've got your Mo Salah or your Jorginho's, they, those players whose value would go up incredibly if yeah. you know you had someone who was a dead cert <laughs> from the penalty spot as well. Right? All of a sudden, James Ward-Prowse is now worth £150 <laughs> million. Pounds. Oh, and speaking of that, uh, one other thing I had for why I think draws exist is because it incentivizes playing to the end of the, like, the full whistle. Because if you know, we've talked about this before, once we get into extra time and both teams are kind of tired... Within a couple minutes, if it starts to feel like, yeah, we're going to penalties, both teams will sort of sit off and let that happen. And I think if you're getting into the 80th minute and it's nil-nil, neither team wants to lose when you know that at the end you're going to penalties and maybe you'll win it there. I could see the game getting worse from a quality, from an entertainment perspective, because you have fewer 91st minute. That leads game. Does that happen the way it went down recently? If... Like, if they're both just kind of playing for the penalty shootout at the end, I I don't know. Because once teams commit numbers forward... They leave themselves vulnerable. Then that leaves itself vulnerable. If you're counterattacking the counter, then you can get countered. And I think there's so many things that happen right at the end of games because teams are pushing for that late winner or to not concede that late winner. If you throw in a penalty shootout at the end, I think you get a reduction in that drama, a reduction in that energy. And and also, Ryan, you said at the top there that maybe you would get more teams pressing for a win if it if you had a winner and loser from every game. Obviously, we don't know this is all hypothetical, but I'd be surprised if that was the case, just using how yeah. extra time all, uh, often plays out before a mm. penalty shootout, which I often think is where you get the, the worst period of soccer, just because teams are terrified to lose. Their, 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 their fear of losing overrides the, the prospect of winning. So if we're making the final 30 minutes of games or 20 minutes of game or whatever, the final phase of uh, 90 minutes match, 90 minute matches like extra time, yeah, I'm not in favor of that. That that feels like a that feels like a bad trade-off. Uh, also, I was wondering about how it would affect like league situations. Let's say Inter Milan at the moment they've drawn four of their last six league games. If they knew that they had penalty shootouts coming up, well, I don't know if they toss the coin on that and maybe they'd be doing better or a lot worse. Who's to say? Who knows? Uh, a very inc- interesting question, though, Pete. Thank you very much for that one. We've got plenty more coming after this very very short break. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are taking your questions, including this one from Mr. Zach Lippert. Zach says, if the US had to play without a striker, a la Spain's 4-6-0 formation at the 2010 World Cup, how would they line up? Joe, I'll come to you, and I will uh, leave you with this. Pulisic, false, nine, Pulisic, <laughs> false, nine. My first point is, hasn't the US already been doing this for like, yes. I don't know, four years now? It kind of feels like <laughs> it. 
Um, I'll, I'll back up one step before I get into how I would line up and just clarify my interpretation of the formation that Zach is talking about. So he mentions this 4-6-0 formation. That's less to do with the positional alignment, which is it's kind of confusing, but Zach, I totally get where you're coming from because this is not something that you dreamed up here. I've read about this and, and seen it before. It's not a back four with six midfielders just horizontally lined up across the width of the field. It's it's basically a 4-3-3-ish kind of shape, but without any true de facto attackers or wingers, especially the, the key point being, as Zach mentions in his question, without a striker. And so you think about Spain around 2010 and when they were in, in that dominant form in 2008 and 2012 and 2010, all that good stuff with the exception of the U.S. beating them in 2009. Um, you, you have them without a true nine at times. There's there's forwards in their rosters on a regular basis, but you might get a front three, and I, I believe this happened, of David Silva on one wing, wing in heavy air quotes, Andres Iniesta in, on the other wing, again, heavy air quotes, and uh, Fabregas as that quote-unquote nine, who's dropping in and really helping to popularize the false nine, which we now see most closely through Firmino, um, and, and really Jesus Ferreira is another genuine mainstream example with Dallas and, and with the national team. So I think the U.S. has almost kind of sort of done bits and pieces of this before. One other quick point I want to make is now with the false nine, a lot of nines just do some false nine things and also just do other things as well. And so we've almost, I think, moved past this idea of a false nine. They're just more versatile players now, it seems to me, than they were before. But enough preamble for me. How I would do this, Zach, to answer your question, it all depends on if I can use Jesus Ferreira or not. I have one lineup with him in it and one without him. So the back four and the goalkeeper doesn't really matter here. The fullbacks are just going to need to be extra good at providing width and, and really getting forward. And I think in Dest and, and Robinson, the U.S. has players that can do that. So I'm not going to get into any of those players in any detail. But my lineup, as far as the midfield and quote-unquote forward line goes, Tyler Adams at the six, Weston McKenney and Yudis Musa filling out the rest of that real genuine midfield and then if I've got Jesus Ferreira and I'm allowed to use him and the council can rule on that if they want to, I've got Ferreira as the nine dropping in and playmaking, Luca De La Torre and Gio Reyna as the two wingers slash not wingers. So that's that's my one. And the other one's very similar. It's just if I, if I don't get to use Jesus Ferreira, I am putting Gio Reyna, not Christian Pulisic in this lineup, Ryan, although that is a good shout. I've got Gio Reyna as the nine and Paxton Pomichol into that forward line. So that's Gio, Pomichol, De La Torre <laughs> as the front three and then Adams, Moose, and McKinney. Taylor, are you laughing because you did the same thing? No, I'm laughing because you you will forever put Paxton Pomacall into your lineups, won't you? <laughs> You're on this crusade now, Joe. I feel like Until you are driving that hype train. You are shoveling the coal into that train. Until the day I die, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> I love it. I love it, Joe. Who's you your have third one there, Joe? Your, of your front three, Pomacall. Pomacall, uh, De La Torre, and Gio Reyna. So the reason I didn't Torre, put I Christian Pulisic as that nine is... I, I just don't think he would be good at it, actually. that's It's not that complicated. I, I think he's too dribbly, and Gio Reyna's pretty dribbly too, but Christian Pulisic feels more of a straight-line player. When people talk about playing him as a 10, I, re, I just don't get it. I don't think he makes sense in the middle of the field, and we saw the U.S. do that a bit against Canada uh, in that loss in Hamilton, and, and that was just a desperation move from Baralter, so I, I understand that. But the ball sticks to his feet a little too much for me, and he's not a, a through-ball threat or really anything of the sort. So I'd rather have Gio Reyna with a bit of a bigger frame and I think more playmaking instincts doing that false nine job. Taylor, what do you have for this question? I'm curious. I had Gio Reyna. Uh, and I think a lot of that was informed by, as I was thinking about this one, I saw the story that he is being discussed as the replacement for Marco Royce, that he will be the future number 10 for Dortmund. And so to me, that was like, well, okay, if we need a like 
connector who can score goals but can facilitate attacking play, that's going to be Gio Reyna. So I had him. I had two wide attackers, like basically boots on the, the touchline, and then Musa and McKinney bombing forward alongside Reyna to a, a, a overload centrally, uh, and I would be very, very into that. Joe, did you have any issue with the question overall? Because, like, Spain definitely had a forward in 2010 World Cup. I guess they had Cesc Fabregas at times, but that, that did throw me for a moment because it feels like Spain had a forward and we've seen the U.S. play with a false nine, so now I'm confused. Sure, it's it's not that different, and I kind of tried to hint at that beforehand. It's not totally different. The The thing for Spain, though, Taylor, is sure they had David Villa and Fernando Torres, I believe, in that, in that 2010 yep. squad, but, you know, those players... Did, did get minutes and they played for Spain in that time, but this was a distinct tactical choice from Del Bosque, right? This was a move that he made intentionally to try to give his team a, a distinct advantage in mm. games by changing the look of that forward line. So no, I don't, I don't have any issue with that question. And even when we apply it to the U.S. team, I mentioned how they've done sort of similar things with the the interpretation of the nine position with Jesus Ferreira. But even then, the wingers are very different in profile. If you have Christian Pulisic and Tim Weah as two examples, it doesn't really matter who we're picking here. The wingers are much more vertical and aggressive getting in behind than Iniesta or David Silva or whoever are the, the playmaking in, inverted or narrow central midfield wingers, or however you want to describe them, that Spain used at that time with this look. So no, I think there's elements of this that are done all over the world, but in terms of pure overloads in midfield, which is something that Spain was excellent at, as well as Barcelona around that time, the U.S. hasn't ever reached anything close to that, nor, at least with this generation of players, will they ever reach that, because they just don't have the technical quality to do that. I mean, Adams and McKenney yeah. and Musa, who are in, in the central midfield group, are, are very good players. They're great players, and they have really high ceilings, all of them. But they're never going to be Busquets or Xabi Alonso or Iniesta or, or whoever. They just, they're completely different players. And so it would be fun to see the U.S. trot out something like this, just like it would be fun to see them trot out your chaos lineup from yesterday, Taylor. But hmm. I mean, at times, the, the profiles just don't make sense for something like this. Uh, yeah. I, no, no argument, Joe. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I find myself then wondering how... Like, nuclear, the reaction on social media would be if Greg Berhalter had number nines, the caliber of David Villa and Fernando Torres, and was just like, nope, false nine, <laughs> we're not playing with the central striker. I cannot imagine that would go over particularly well. Yeah, I, I'm not sure Berhalter <laughs> can do a whole lot without there being a this general <laughs> meltdown on Twitter, so I think he's screwed no matter what, to be honest. Giorena doesn't have the number 10 shirt? This is a travesty. <laughs> yes, I agree with you, Joe. I agree with you. Joe, I push back on this being a fun experiment because <laughs> when I think of Spain doing this, say at Euro 2012, where they just seem disinterested yeah. in scoring in general, I, it doesn't strike me as a fun thing to do. 2012 wasn't fun at all. That is, that's not how I remember that, that Spain team. That was, that was peak 4-6-0 for that Spain team, as, as yeah. I remember it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you do it well, it's fun. If it's, if it's you know, against a really bunker team and you have a thousand passes like like more recent Spain did against Russia in the World Cup in 2018, then it's uh, then it's not so fun. Indeed. All right, James, are we happy with this one? Graham, happy with this one? Yep, sure. Uh, I uh, pretty much went down the same route as Taylor with Gio Reyna. And then I've got Tim Weah on the right for, to play the Pedro role. I think that's and then... cheating. Cheating. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what, because he's I'm a forward? Saying, yeah. If I you mean, don't I like possession, it, win the ball back. That's but, what I have to say. Well, hold on. Pedro was a forward. He was still in the county no, in this it's 4 true. Six, It's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I need some width. Come on. I can't just play the whole game in like this 20-yard square. And, oh, wait. Spain did that. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, Zach, thank you very much for the question there. Let's move on to one from Dennis Duggan. Dennis asks, what is tempo in soccer? What does it mean to change the tempo and why does it work? Um, Joe, rudimentarily speaking, tempo is just the speed of the game and the speed at which a team plays a game, right? Yeah, and it's almost always the the team in possession of the ball that we describe as, as changing the tempo or setting the tempo. I don't really hear, to be honest, guys, and maybe you guys do hear this, I don't hear the phrase tempo a whole lot in soccer. You, you might hear speed of play in a team needing to move the ball faster, but I don't often think about changing the rhythm of a game or changing the tempo as a weapon to attack. And so that's that's an interesting concept to think about. And so maybe I think what Dennis, maybe it would be helpful for Dennis to understand this a bit better is for, for us to give some examples of that, or at least I'm going to do that quickly here rather than define it. Because Ryan, I think you just did that in, in five seconds. And I think that's it's pretty clear to understand that part of it. It's changing the speed at which things are happening with the ball. One example though of a tempo change in possession could be when the offensive team, let's say, has the ball on one side of the field and they're passing it between maybe it's the left back and the left winger and the left central midfielder comes over and they're, they're passing and they're, they're triangulating over there, trying to draw the defense towards them on that side. As soon as the defense and then that whole shape bites and slides over, changing the tempo could be them quickly rotating the ball through central midfield and getting it to the other side or then making a run through the middle of the field, basically changing the location and changing up the, the speed of passes and the length of passes to move the ball into a different space. Another example could be a player off the ball waiting to make a run in behind the back line until the defender, or maybe it's the, the center back, takes a step forward and bites on someone in midfield. Then at, at that point you go boom and you, you run in behind and you make that run into the space. Changing the tempo works and I think it's a concept that's associated with creating and exploiting space. You draw the defense or, or an individual defender into one area, you pull them away from a specific part of the field, and then you quickly attack that area. So it's, it's sort of a call and response thing of baiting and then moving into space and trying to manipulate the defense. Again, not a term or a concept I think about all that often, but I think if you yeah. watch pretty much any game, you'll see it in, in one form or another. Joe, I, I got to be honest. I think I kind of completely disagree with you, to be honest, because yeah. I think I agree with Ryan. I think it is the speed at which the game is being played for sure. And I think it's essentially like a team is I agree with you that it's a team in possession usually is dictating the way the game is being played, the tempo of that game. I think if uh, Dennis is listening for it, you'll hear maybe tempo, you'll hear like the pace of this game or the speed of play or it's a frenetic pace. You'll hear a lot of that type of terminology. And to me, it's about how quickly the ball is moving, how quickly teams are able to attack. Liverpool are pressing and winning the ball and then uh, attacking as quickly as they can to catch, catch you out. And if you are a team who does not want to play at that speed, you have to find ways to slow the game down, to tire Liverpool out, to nullify that threat. And so I see it as basically changing the speed of the game. So if Liverpool want to play this high-intensity, quick-passing, quick-moving it's taking a while to get the ball back into play. It's short passes, it's slow passes, it's deliberate passes. If you get knocked down, it's taking your time to get back up. It's sort of, to me, disrupting the flow of the game is slowing down the tempo versus Liverpool, I think, will, and other pressing teams, will have that more aggressive approach. They're trying to speed the game up because they want teams playing to their level, to their speed, because oftentimes teams can't do that to maximum efficiency or to the efficiency of those teams that are trained in pressing. And then when they're trying to match that tempo, they end up making mistakes and losing the ball 
and then the teams that can play at that speed tend to capitalize. So I think, yeah. to me, it's more of a balance of just the overall flow of the game. And I think the best games are when you've got two teams that want to attack and want to play at a super high tempo. That's when you get those back and forth, two twos at the half, and everybody's kind of tired, but everybody's up for the second half. We didn't say anything that's mutually exclusive, though, Taylor. Like, those are both totally applicable concepts for any particular game, right? I think it's oh, I think it's just that you seem to be talking about like players making runs into and to me that's more just like style of play versus the speed of play. Hmm. Interesting. Graham, anything to add here? I think when when Dennis has heard the, the term tempo, uh, as Taylor referred there, perhaps it's referred you'd hear it quite often around pressing teams, the high tempo teams, right? Yeah, and and it, I guess it could be folded in with terms like intensity, which seems to be you maybe hear that more now than than. Tempo. Although I have to say, tempo. I have heard tempo used a, a, a number of times. I also think of things like um, even in teams in their use of the ball. So, for example, Real Madrid against Barcelona at the weekend there in the Clasico, um, just getting completely overwhelmed by by Barcelona, who were doing things so so quickly. And so Real Madrid, after they were they went two 0 down, there was a period where they almost just accepted they were they were trying to slow the tempo down so. Um, much that they regain some control of the match, and they're not really doing much by by doing that. Um, they were just kind of playing some passes around the defence in the midfield, and Barcelona were standing off them for a period. But that was just for them to regain some control. So that's uh, you know how a, another way a team could kind of use um, slowing the tempo down. Because I often think people think of tempo as quick tempo all the time. Ralph mm-hmm. Rangnick stands on the on the touchline at Old Trafford when Man United are struggling to break down a, a low defensive block, which uh, spoiler happened has happened a lot this <laughs> season. And he, you can audibly hear him shouting, "Quicker, quicker, quicker!" So people often think of it purely from the from the, the attacking point of view, from a defensive point of view as well. Mm-hmm. Coaches like Mourinho, uh, Ancelotti, they've they've all kind of used a slower tempo to their um, to, to their benefit okay. as well. Even Guardiola uses he he obviously is is a, an advocate of quick tempo as well and, and a lot of attacking play but in a defensive side of, of, of the ball and also in uh, just having some control he he appreciates how slow tempo as well can Graham, can benefit um, I've got to jump in when Ranić is saying quicker 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 he's referring to I want the period of time that I'm in this job to move quicker <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just can't wait for the summer yeah <laughs> Hurtful, hurtful. And Joe, I should clarify, I I wasn't trying to say like, no, you're wrong. I was trying to say, I think it's really interesting when there are differences in understanding terms or differences in approach in the way we discuss the game. Because I I always, it's it's no different than a relationship. If, If you're talking about a thing one way and your partner's talking about a thing in the other way, finding where that disconnect is and finding like the commonality of what you're talking about always uh, works better than being like, nope, you're wrong. It's this. Uh, that doesn't tend to lead to long-lasting relationships. So for us, I like knowing where you're coming from to be able to to understand it better to then think like, okay, so when we're talking tempo in this situation, maybe he's talking about this, and that lets me understand the game in a different way. So always enjoy those disagreements was just momentarily confused because I was like, do I have this entire thing wrong? Am I, am, I, <laughs> am I completely wrong? Oh, no, I'm a fool. No, no, no. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I, I've heard... And I I don't know, I guess I I certainly didn't approach the question from the way that you guys did. I've heard that idea of this game has a quick tempo. It's really aggressive and frenetic. I've heard that idea before. I just thought of it in a different way. So, yeah, no, I think think Mm. all the things that we're talking about apply to this term. Excellent stuff. Like it. Thank you very much, Dennis, for the question. Let's go to Richard Rolson, who asks or says, Can René Higuita be considered one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time. Uh, listener, uh, if you're not aware of the oeuvre of René Higuita, he was a Colombian, <laughs> played across um, Colombia and South America and Spain. He was 
very unorthodox. Um, he took set pieces. He made some quite risky decisions, uh, one of which was in famously in the 1990 World Cup where he tried to get the ball past uh, Cameroon's Reggie Miller by sort of faking him and trying Reggie to... Reggie Miller? <laughs> what did I say? Was he taking a break from the Pacers to play for Cameroon? <laughs> Roger Mia. Come on, Roger. man. Roger oh, Mila, come on. I'm very jet-lagged, Taylor. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway. He was busy. He took a break from fighting with Spike Lee. He came over, <laughs> played for Cameroon real quick, ran right back to the Pacers, and away they went. Yeah. Tried to get past Cameroon's Roger Mila, <laughs> yeah. who, um, who dispossessed him and scored. And you'll, you'll know him perhaps from the scorpion kick he scored at Wembley Stadium in a friendly against England in 1995. Scored. Yeah. <laughs> he also had quite a crazy life off the pitch in 1993. He went to prison yeah. for involvement in the kidnapping um, situation. He was yes. acting as a go-between between two drug barons, one of whom was Pablo Escobar. Uh, he oh. missed some games for testing mm-hmm. positive for cocaine. He's done reality TV. He's had extensive plastic surgery. But is he, Graham Rudvan, one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time? I am on the fence. Um, I mean, I'm not. The answer is no for, <laughs> for me, <laughs> to be quite frank. I mean, I guess it depends on what your, your definition of greatest is but if we're, if we're talking about like pure sporting ability then no he's, he's not one of the greatest of all time i think he might be one of the most iconic goalkeepers of all time yep. but that's that's a that's a different thing uh obviously as you say he has the, the famous scorpion kick which served absolutely no purpose beyond looking <laughs> really really cool and i guess ensuring that he would be talked about for for decades to come but looking past the scorpion kicks and all the other stuff i i guess he higita was a, a modern goalkeeper before that was that was really a thing at the, at the top level. Obviously, he took it to the extreme by dribbling up the pitch and taking set pieces and all sorts, as you say there, Ryan. But he was uh, he was quick off his line. He was good with the ball at his feet. He played out from the back at a time when not many players in his position did that. So, um, yeah, I guess you could argue he was a pioneer of sorts in many ways. Iconic, certainly. You could maybe argue he was one of the greatest South American goalkeepers ever, given his number of appearances in World Cups and for the national team, Colombian national teams and so on, but I wouldn't have him in that category globally. Um, Certainly not in the category of I am completely going off the top of my head here in terms of who are the greatest of all time. So I would, of of my lifetime anyway, I would say like Buffon, Oliver Kahn, Iker Casillas, Manuel Neuer, that's kind of the the level I'm talking about and I don't think Higuita's quite at that level. That's fair to say. Uh, Joe, a genuine question for you. Was he before your time? Do you recall him? Uh, no, only from videos. And I went back through, I, I'm very familiar with him as a cult figure, because in my mind, that's exactly what he is. Right. And so I, I know of him very well. I was familiar with his backstory, not with all of the off the field things that you mentioned, Ryan, that was a new revelation to to me, at least for some <laughs> of it. But I went back through and watched the scorpion kicks again. And just my mouth was hanging open. I, I've seen it a dozen times before. Every time I go in and watch it, I, I just repeat the cycle of shock and awe all over again. <laughs> Graham, I'm with you from everything that I, I know and understand about Rene Aguita. He is not one of the best goalkeepers ever. He is maybe the 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 unique goalkeeper ever, ever in soccer, not even putting the qualifier on, on unique that doesn't even belong there. He is not, in my mind, one of the greatest ever, but he is certainly the most entertaining. Joe, I am old enough to have watched that live in November 1995, possibly the last interesting thing that happened in an international break for England fans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can we also mention, it's worth, like, just for posterity, the scorpion kick is incredible, but that sequence immortalizes that Jamie Redknapp cannot cross a ball. Jamie Redknapp, I don't know what he's aiming for there, but if you watch that one again, it is not a well-hit cross into the box. Uh, and it was deep. 
It's a great it's a great moment, but I agree with Graham. It does not a greatest goalkeeper ever make. I did have him in my most unique or influential or notorious. Graham, what did you call it? Iconic? Iconic, yeah. Everything, yeah. like the, the, the hair and the oh, scorpion yeah. kick and so on. So, yeah, he's, he's definitely yeah. iconic, but not in terms of sporting ability, not the greatest. I had a, a top five on that one for you, on the most okay. iconic goalkeepers. I had Iguita in there. I had uh, Jose Luis uh, Chilever, who oh, is, yeah. I think, probably the best South American goalkeeper, in my opinion, and did similar things. His free kick ability was insane, and I remember it being almost a glitch in FIFA that if you played uh, Paraguay with him in goal, he was scoring every single free kick because otherwise their goal was wide open. So that was a fun little glitch. Uh, Jorge Campos, I would say, is a pretty iconic one. Manuel Neuer would be on there. And Fabian Bartes, I think, rounds out my most iconic. But my greatest of all time, I had Chilever on there. I had Schmeichel. I had Gigi Buffon. I had Lev Yashin as well, obviously. from Not from my time timeline did you all know that there is a top 10 list of the greatest goalkeepers of the century compiled by who the international federation of football history and statistics oh Oh. so it's official (laughs) uh lev yashin gordon banks is number two dino's off number three set meyer number four ricardo zamora number five it's mostly non-active players they do keep uh, a list of goalkeepers of the modern era, and it's either Iker Casillas or Gigi Buffon is top of that list. That that organization definitely sounds like something that Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli would start as a breakaway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of. That's that's their <laughs> competitive opta. <Yeah. laughs> Are they sponsored by Crypto.com? That's what I need to know. <laughs> I mean, pr- probably at this point, and they've got some NFTs in there too. Wonderful stuff. And a wonderful question from Richard Rolson. Thank you very much for that one. We're probably not going to put uh, René Higuita in the annals of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, but certainly a cult figure, if you will. Uh, back with a couple more questions after this break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Here's a question from Christine Davenport. One of the biggest barriers to getting American friends to watch soccer is the flopping, arguably the darkest art of poophousery. How has VAR changed the calibre of floppeteering? Good work, Christine. When did flopping start and become associated with the game? Is diving explicitly coached or practiced at top levels to be implemented in the right situations? Uh, Graham, if I think about my introduction to the game and the first instances of diving, I think of two people, uh, Jürgen Klinsmann, who famously Mm -hmm. had a big old dive in the World Cup final in 1990 that got an Argentine player sent off. And when the the player I saw firsthand who sort of introduced diving to England as I saw it was David Ginola. 
at Newcastle and Tottenham, who was a player I'd never seen someone as talented and move the way he moved on the ball. Uh, but his predilection for just falling on the floor all the time, I found it outrageous because I'd never seen any other player do it in the Premier League or elsewhere, apart from Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, uh, so uh, that's not necessarily where flopping started, but do you have thoughts to kick off this conversation? So it's interesting that you mentioned Klinsmann there because when I, for starters, I don't think there is a definitive answer of when uh, diving or flopping started. But I, I, that Klinsman incident, it feels like gets referenced a lot. Now, that could just be because the 1990 World Cup was very much a, a watershed in the broadcast of, of the World Cup. And maybe more people were watching that World Cup and that game around the world. And so Klinsman does that. And that's the, the quote unquote start of diving at the top level of football. But yeah. it's it's just kind of always been... Always been there for me. I, I personally oh, Graham, think... Graham, I'll of, say that it, uh, that Klinsman moment is referenced a lot because he referenced it himself. His goal yeah. celebration thereafter yeah. was diving on the floor. That was one of the best goal, goal celebrations ever, is that, is that, uh, that dive <laughs> along the floor. Iconic, right. iconic from uh, Jürgen Klinsman. But I, I think of uh, Ashley Young as being my, my favourite uh, diver of all time just because it was always very funny when he would kind of do the... They kind of throw both of his legs back at the same time in unison to, to try and uh, simulate contact. One thing I would say about diving now is that I do think VR has changed the nature of diving. Previously, it used to be about simulating the contact. Now it seems to be more about manufacturing the contact. So obviously with VAR, you now have, uh, at the elite level anyway, in the Premier League and the big leagues in Europe and the Champions League and so on and MLS, you ha- the, the referees and the officials have the opportunity to review an incident and see if there is any contact or not. So now you'll see players leave a leg out to try and catch an opponent. And if, if, uh, if there's no contact, VR will pretty much always pick that up. But if it's less clear cut, you can create the contact for yourself and then you give the officials the, the decision of was that uh was that a natural contact or you know has that been manufactured and that's where the, now the gray area tends to be in in that manufacturing rather than in the previous gray area which was has there been contact or not because VR has kind of eliminated that so diving diving has changed I'm not sure diving is coached or practiced although I love the feeling I, I love the sorry that I love the uh, the the idea of of a, of a coach. Uh, it feels like something that would be a bit in a Ted Lasso episode, like Jason Sudeikis <laughs> coaching, uh, flopping, or, yes. or I, I can imagine maybe Mohamed Salah leading his teammates in diving training. I'm not sure that that really happens, but that's my general thoughts on well, flopping and diving. That's interesting, Graham, because I've actually asked some youth coaches about this because I was fascinated by the idea of, you know, we, we, hear, we hear commentators all the time saying, oh, he has to go down there. He really had to go down there. And it makes you think, well, are the coaches saying that too? And the ones I've spoken to would never admit that they explicitly coach diving, but they would say that's a situation where you need to hit the deck, basically. So they were yeah. in one way saying no, but yes, we also do tell them to dive. Yeah, I think though, I think that that's a really interesting point, Ryan. And I think th- that's where the question, I think, differentiates in a really interesting way, because I don't think that is coached or practiced at the top levels. But I absolutely think that is a thing that is coached at youth level. And I don't even mean that in a we're teaching kids how to dive at a young age, but it's part of the game. And to your point, yeah, I think coaches, you have to teach kids. Yeah, he knocked, he hit you, you can fall over. She bumped into you, you can fall over. And then you have to kind of course correct if it becomes too floppy, too divey. But I think we're kind of taught that you've got to like, soldier through. You've got to find a way through. And if you get knocked off the ball, you pick yourself up and keep going. 
And there is an element of like, no, you've got to show, yeah, I was knocked off the ball illegally. I had a coach who taught me that and also taught me the actual dark arts, like untying people's shoes right before a corner came in or stepping on their toe. <laughs> what? Uh, those are definite things that I was taught when I was like 12 years old. Uh, what? But, For real? Someone told you to untie yeah. an opponent's shoes? It was, just, I mean, it was like, it was one of those things. It was like before practice and he was, uh, it was just like, you know, we were like goofing around, like shooting, passing and whatever. And he, I think so he was. questions about that. <laughs> Wow. Like, how long are people taking uh, corner kicks when you're growing up? Also, did you grow up in, like, a comic book or something? <laughs> Wait, do you, do you, really? This is, uh, so, no, I can tell you exactly what it is. It's basically <laughs> as the person's getting set to take the corner, you bend over like you're out of breath, like hands on knees. You're just waiting for the corner. And you'll see players do that. They're sort of bent over seeing what's happening. And right as it comes in, you just sort of reach down because you're already bent over and pull the shoelace. And they'll look down. At the very least, they will feel it and look at their feet, and then you run away. I did, did it once, this? and it didn't work, and I felt very bad, and maybe apologized to the player and afterwards, which is very is there a contingency, Taylor, is there a contingency plan if they're double-knotted? What happens then? <laughs> I think that's where you just like pull really hard and try to distract them. Right. Or maybe just you're just whole, saying, like, just oh, take the whole just, shoe off. just checking, just checking. Yeah, this just this feels like one of those magicians who like takes a wristwatch off of someone while distracting them. This feels <laughs> oh, very, very dark, yeah. Taylor. Or, or, Taylor, you, you pull the, la- the shoelace, as you say, you then run away and then completely lose your man, and he just scores <laughs> oh, yes. from the corner. <laughs> yeah. I think, ideally, I was attacking the corner, not, oh, right, okay. not defending it. I don't know if it worked that way. I will say, I did learn the greatest way ever to always get a free kick and it and it is a thing i still do i will tell you now if you are running shoulder to shoulder with a person chasing a ball if you lock arms with them and fall over they will always fall on top of you and it will 100 percent look like they clipped you almost every single time uh that is a thing that i was also taught as a 12 year old that i still occasionally do in my advanced age as i maybe lose a foot race more commonly <laughs> that's a thing that sometimes you got to slow it down you got to change the tempo joe and that's one way to do it i'm here for it <laughs> joe for, to christine's question who says that it's a barrier to getting her american friends to watch uh soccer flopping um is that an experience you've had do you think it's an yeah. issue uh what do you think yeah i mean it's a it's certainly something that i've come across and at this point i i don't really try to argue with people because i'm not exactly sure what to say i have this weird respect for diving like it is very much part of the game and i think you'd be foolish not to take advantage of every part of the game and so i know i don't really ever know what to say to those people and I just try to point them if I'm trying to get them to like soccer, which which I, I do try to do. I just try to point them to the parts of soccer that I, I do like and the parts that I think they'll like as well, like the, the exciting bits and the parts that aren't so poop housery esque And so, yeah, I, I, Ryan, to your question to me, I think that's absolutely a barrier. And I think Christine's totally on point with that. I, I, I mean, I struggle with that part of the question because I, I, uh, I like diving. <laughs> I'm just an agent what? of chaos. Yeah, I've yep. said this on the podcast before. I enjoy poop housery. I, I uh, yeah, just embrace the chaos. Like it, I, I, I try and try and appreciate the skill and the deception. And if it's not a good enough deception, then it's funny. Like Vinicius diving in the classical was funny because that, that was, was a, a terrible bad dive. dive. That was so yeah, it was bad. a really bad one. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't mention that on weekend review, but that was one of the worst dives I've ever seen. Oh boy, uh, Graham, I don't know what to make of that. If you're if an opponent to the team you're supporting dives. You oh, yeah. appreciate it if it's good. Oh, yeah, they're getting a pie thrown at them if that, if that happens. Yeah. <laughs> that is, but that's, that's a good my team. team. That's, that's what they want, though, Graham. <laughs> yeah, that's what they want. Good. 
But I think that is, to the question of what do you tell soccer novices, that is one thing, is when a diver gets caught and booed, it, it's like a light version of mob justice. Like when the entire stadium decides, like, no, you are the villain for the rest of the game, we're booing you. There is a, like, self-policing element to it. I would also add VAR is definitely cutting down its frequency. And I would add one other thing. I think so often diving gets looped in with a player falling down and it's like, oh, he was barely even touched. There was such minimal contact. And I say this all the time. I will always preach this. Just try running at full speed and having so having someone clip one foot, even just a little bit. If you're running at full speed, anything that makes that like surprises you in your gait, in your stride, is going to make you fall down and fall down hard if you were at full speed. And the replays always make it look minimal and like oh that was such a dive that he went down so easily they didn't they're running at full speed they get clipped they're going down and i think sometimes that gets folded into diving it's like oh it's so soft it's non-contact and i would just say try hitting the deck at full speed like two or three times in 15 minutes and then come back and talk about how there's not much contact there as yeah as someone who has recently hit the deck as well it's it's uh, pretty pretty sore yeah. Ryan, have you ever fallen while running? Just out of curiosity. I was about to say, Taylor, you were making me think back to an incident in which I was running against the lion. <laughs> Forgot about this. It's almost like I structured this to eventually uh, get us to this point. Let's Ryan. talk about Graham hitting his head yesterday. <laughs> I thought that's where we were leading, but now I, I enjoy this more. It's one of my favorite videos of all time. <sighs> Thank you, Christine, for the question. We're going to move on. We've got a couple more to squeeze in on this episode. Rachel Arnold asks, what are the special heart monitor things that players wear that look like sports bras why don't they just wear the chest straps to monitor heart rate um i've got a few answers here uh taylor do you have anything here yeah it's just a full-on sports bra is it not they've all just got such right. massive pecs that you got to get some support in there that's it next uh, question yeah, exactly. Uh, I, w- I will say it is not that. It's a uh, high-tech GPS tracker. You can tell that I'm reading from my notes. Designed to chart a player's movement while they practice or compete. Uh, it tracks, I believe, their location, their speed of acceleration. Uh, it basically gives trainers, it gives strength and conditioning coaches, and it gives your manager uh, insight into distance covered, top speed, number of sprints, sprint distance, power load, intensity, heat map, and more. There's also, I think... Uh, they're testing, tech, checking like body temperature, heart rate, all those things. So you can basically see how optimally a player is performing. But I think also because it's feeding a real-time app, it, as I understand it, is sort of a very light equivalent of like when you're playing FIFA and you can go in to team management and see what the player's yeah. energy levels are. You can sort of see how like uh, the recovery time is changing. Are they able to run at top speed the way they were in the beginning? And if those numbers really do start to dip, then you have real-time data to back up. We need to make this change. We need to make this substitution. Yeah. See, the way I, the way I took that question, Taylor, was more, more to do with the, 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 like, the application of the, mm-hmm. heart, of the heart rate monitor rather than why are they wearing heart mm-hmm. rate monitors, more like why are they wearing sports bras with them. And my, my only suggestion for that has to be comfort i guess it's like um, i can imagine if you had straps across a, a player's chest um over 90 minutes of exercise that would be quite they used to have that right and yeah. i think like amongst many other reasons it's why people like ryan you maybe i don't know if you did this but it's why people like tape their nipples when they're running a marathon is because that yeah, amount Andy, of agitation oh, yeah it, it'll <laughs> it'll have an impact and i think the other kind of thing that i did not know until i researched this question ryan i might be jumping on your answer is the location of the tracker mm-hmm. it is part of this is that it's between your shoulder blades which yep. i guess from a 
sports science standpoint is the safest place for it to be yeah. in a sport that does have random sort of non like you can't plan for the contact and so if you have it in an area that could be hit could cause damage to you or somebody else that's why you don't say wear it on your wrist as an example yeah, nobody so plans for the contact except you taylor when you're locking up <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah there's no corner kicks where you're whipping off someone's sports bra is there taylor i don't i don't want to see that um I mean, yeah, you're quite right taylor the reason that it is a bra not like a strap that you wear like with a heart monitor on it is because it's the safest way to put it the little pod goes between your shoulders because you don't want it on your front where the ball could hit it it could impede you or a strap would get in the way uh the other function of the sports bra is that if you play for into my Miami, it shows through the shirt within five minutes. It just oh, yeah. lets everyone knows you're wearing it. That's basically it. <laughs> that that is the biggest problem that Inter Miami have at this yeah. moment. Yeah. Yep. Far and away. Far and away. Far and away. Far and away. Uh, I think we pretty much nailed that one. Thank you very much, Rachel Arnold. Let's squeeze in one more question from Preston Chitty. This question says Preston is inspired by my wife. Uh, I think he means his wife, not my wife. Uh, where did the term Meg or getting Megged come from? How did the word come about and why is it one of the ultimate shames to get Megged and or one of the sweetest satisfactions to Meg your opponent? Graham. Meg is short for nutmeg. Correct. Go on. Yeah, so there's a few theories on this. I'm not sure I buy any of them, but I'll, I'll give you what my, my research uh, put forward. So there's a, a theory put forward by a man called Peter Seddon in a book called Football Talk, the language and folklore of the world's greatest game. Taylor, I feel like that's a book you might own. You, you always talk about I don't. I own. And... I own the Guardian article that the excerpt of that appeared in. Okay, sure. <laughs> Taylor just okay. has it printed out on his desk. <laughs> yeah, I do. Framed, in fact. Yeah. So Seddon suggests in that book that the the word arose because of a, a practice used in nutmeg exports between North America and England at that time. And I'm just going to read out a section of uh, of that book. Nutmegs were such a valuable commodity that unscrupulous exporters were to pull mm. a fast one by mixing a helping of wooden replicas, wooden replicas into the sacks being shipped to England. Being nutmeg soon came to imply stupidity on the part of the duped victim and cleverness on the part of the trickster. And obviously a nutmeg is a trick in soccer where you play the ball between the legs of an opponent, opponent therefore a nutmeg. The other theory is slightly uh, less romantic and is more straightforward, and that's simply that nutmeg is rhyming slang for legs. And as I've just said, a nutmeg involves playing the ball through uh, opponent's legs. I like the Victorian um, nutmeg export answer better, Graham. Yeah, it's, it feels uh, it, it feels more thorough and, as I say, romantic rather than just rhyming slang. But it, I don't know. It feels just—it's just something much like uh, draws. They've just been around <laughs> forever. Nutmegs. It—it it just—it's such a like you got to do a lot of. Uh, there's a podcast I like uh, called Blank Check, and it's a movies podcast. But they talk about how so often expository dialogue has to be sweaty. Like if you got to sweat a lot to get across what you're trying, like the plot point. This feels like that. It's a very sweaty explanation of like, oh, it was they would carve fake nutmegs and if you bought one of the fake nutmegs then you'd been deceived and you had been tricked and so a <laughs> nutmeg is when it passes through your legs and you've been tricked ha <laughs> exactly it's like i don't quite follow the line of it's not really a direct line is i guess what i'm saying i did do some more reading on that one because i was just like was that a whole industry like unscrupulous nutmeg vendors uh and i i think from reading more it sounds like uh ships that were trading the nutmeg would have 
excess supplies of wood, usually teak, I think, to patch holes to, you know, you got wooden ships, you got to have wood around. Uh, and then sailors, when they were in their downtime, would carve wooden nutmegs that they wanted to add to the hold to increase the weight. So then when they came into port, when their uh, shipment was weighed, they would make more money. So it was sort of the sailors doing it, which feels a little bit trickier. But even there, you're still doesn't quite get to the like... Ah, those crafty nutmeg importers. Oh, you passed the ball through my legs. Well, you're one of those nutmeg importers as well. Like, that doesn't... I don't follow that entirely. I still like that explanation because otherwise it is just like, ah, you put it through his nutmeg. And that (laughs) does also feel like it might have been what happened. I'm picturing, Taylor, like a Victorian ship worker, a shipyard Uh worker with a pipe in his mouth, like getting nutmeg bags out that have come over from the US to England. And he's like looking through them, pulls out a wooden one. By Jove, I've been nutmegged. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. See, I I like that. Apparently, dude, I tried to find them because apparently they are super expensive to find nowadays, the fake ones. You can still buy them, but they're super rare and really expensive. But I feel like that's a – if that story is real, that is a collector's item that I think every uh, soccer nerd needs. The the ship worker should have said, by Jove, I've been given wood. Um, Joe, any more (laughs) thoughts on this question? See, Um, yeah, that's what it should be. Getting wood. There you go. Why why it's one of the ultimate shames to get megged. I presume it's just because it's quite embarrassing to have something put through your legs unwittingly, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's just defensively you're not supposed to do that, right? They're not supposed to be able to go through you. The the whole point of defending (laughs) is to force someone into a particular area. And so if they just completely disregard your intentions and go right through you, I think that's the embarrassment. And... Yeah, it's just become this cultural cult soccer thing. And so you don't want to get nutmeg. That's just the way it is. I don't know. Like like sort of with the draw question, it just is the way it is. And at this point, none of us are old enough to have been alive when any of these traditions were started. And so we're just guessing at this point. <laughs> it's the worst feeling. It is it the is. worst feeling to get megged. There's it really. It's not fun at all. There's no good about it. Even when you're just messing around, there's still a moment of just like sheer embarrassment and humiliation. Not great. Not great. There is indeed. On that note, <laughs> let's end listener questions. No, am I wrong? Does, does nobody no, else feel right. that way? Everyone I'll, else is just like cool with it. You guys I'll, are all. You guys are all lame. You guys are all attackers. None of you are I defenders. Mean, I'm not an attacker. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm barely a person. <laughs> Feels like a good point to end listener wow. questions. Thank you very much, listener, for sticking with God's Have we just have we just stumbled upon the truth? Are we all gonna like plan some get together? We're gonna show up in Graham's town and it's just gonna be AI. one of those like Graham's been dead for fifteen years. <laughs> like like the ghost of Graham has just been doing this show. Is that what's happening here? That feels right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would explain a lot. He's, he's clearly been telling us all along, but we've just been laughing yeah. it off. Exactly, oh, it's just right? Graham. Oh, it's Graham, a Sixth Sense so situation. Silly. Spoiler alert for Sixth Sense. We, uh, yeah, but if like if we trace all this back, there's just going to be times when Graham is just overtly saying, like, hey, you guys remember when time stopped in 1987, <laughs> right? I'm not the only one. We're, no, we're all going to go over to Graham's hometown. You look in the history books, and he was a Victorian nutmeg importer. There it and is. there's the script. <laughs> Yep, that's it. That's, that's as as structurally sound as the English game plot. So yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> very good, very good. All right, we should let the people go now. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your time. I actually got a, a tight 20 more minutes on uh, Nutmeg Importers Excellent. if we want to get to that now, or we could hold off for later. But I guess we'll hold off for later. Ryan, thank you so much for, for putting up with my rambling nonsense. <laughs> Joe Larry, thank you as always. Right back at you, Ryan. Glad you made it back to uh, your your lovely home in Italy. I did indeed. Thank you very much. And Graham Rutherford, if you indeed do exist, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. We'll be back on the feed soon, guys. But for now, bye. bye.